Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we'll explore the shifting pronunciation of a Latin-derived ending. Word nerd Emily Brewster talks with us about what to do when you see the two vowels A-E next to each other in a word. But mainly, we're getting up to a lot of theater. Stages in Western Mass literally explode with content during the summer, and as summer drifts to a close... No! (laughs) The dramatic works just keep coming. Betty Sharp of Historic Northampton and playwright Patrick Gabridge will call our attention to Pulling at the Roots, a series of plays taking a look at the centuries of Northampton's history staged in a barn at Historic Northampton. That's coming up. (laughs) And right now, Shakespeare and Company in Lennox has been presenting one of the Bard's most irreverent pieces. A Midsummer's Night's Dream involves fairies, fancy donkeys, and love and has captivated people for nearly half a millennia. With us is Sheila Bandapadai, who is... (laughs) We told told Sheila to correct us every time we got it wrong because we want to get it right more than we want to sound right. Yes. Bandapadai. Bandapadai. Yes. Yay. Who is currently performing as Puck in its run. Sheila Bandapadai is a multi-hyphenate theater artist who, after 18 years in Brooklyn, is delighted to be making her first year as Shakespeare and Company's director of the Center of Actor Training... In New York, Sheila directed shows at The Brick, the United Solo Festival, The Tank, Women Theater in Festival, the West End Theater, and the 72nd Street Theater Lab. Sheila is a proud member of the Humanist Project and a sponsored artist with Leviathan Lab. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> no problem. So we're coming to the end of maybe your first term there at Shakespeare and Theater, Shakespeare and Company. How is it going? Oh, it's been such an amazing return. I actually started my career here at Shakespeare and Company when I was right out of college. It was oh, my wow. very first theater job uh, teaching in the education program. And so it's it's like a wild turn of events to be coming back, but to be now running and directing the Center for Actor Training, which um, actors come to from all over the country, from all over the world, to not just learn Shakespeare, but to really dive into their imaginations, their hearts, their aesthetic, and to just become more resilient and more exciting artists in the theater. Wicked cool. And one of the things that you're in, is in your bio and that you talk mm-hmm. about especially is doing non-traditional interpretations of Shakespeare. And I think that this yeah. current run definitely is. But what is important about making Shakespeare of the times that it's currently being shown in? That is the question. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it's tis nobler or Exactly, exactly. No, that's what not, we're not talking the... about that show. That's, oh, yeah, that's right, also right. Great, right, right, right. Well, that too. is, we are doing that this week. As a, as a, we're doing a reading of it. Well, I mean, Khalees, this is, this is the question of, that a lot of people ask me when they come, either when they apply, you know, why are you doing Shakespeare? So um, my background is, I started in dance. I got to theater. I loved physical work. Um, and I am a multi-ethnic artist with Indian, uh, Hindu roots and Jewish and like Catholic and all these different mixture of things. And what I found was that in Shakespeare, actually with classical work, there were more avenues for me as someone who didn't kind of fit into really obvious categories. And beyond that, I love the language. I love the depth of communication. So one of the things that I think is so important 
are so useful, maybe it's useful for us right now, is to learn how to communicate with specificity, to be able to discuss our internal experience and to let that be heard, um, whether that is used for social change or just in domestic partnership or with family or in politics. It, it transforms the way that we think because Shakespeare was writing with such heightened poetic language that when I, as an actor, come to it, I have to think a little bit more deeply. I have to engage with my imagination, with my emotions, and with my sense of place in the world. And all of these things together, I really believe that what happens for folks is it's a transformative experience of engaging with one's humanity through this poetic text. I think that would be true in any language when you're dealing with heightened or poetic text. And it just so happens that this culture that I live in and that I grew up in is an English speaking culture. And so this English language text allows me access to something. And I see that happen again and again and again, particularly in our actor training workshops, that it allows people to live large and to speak their truth. And I think that that is incredibly important and relevant at any time, but certainly right now. What's fascinating to me about Shakespeare and the works of Shakespeare is it is so gender bendy. It is in very many ways explicitly queer and it's 400 years old. And yet there is a nationwide debate going on now about how drag is dangerous and all uh, and w a war against wokeism. Mm -hmm. And also, at the same time, if you were to think of the most white male English-speaking dude, the first person you might say is William Shakespeare. Shakespeare. So Shakespeare and company, and you, Sheila, are mm -hmm. kind of, are have this, the entire political gambit to work with when it comes with what is going on now with these plays from 400 years ago. How does your incarnation of Puck in A Midsummer Night's Dream and the play in total deal with all or does it deal with with what's going on politically right now in regards to these things it's a great question so i'm going to just take my time with it because there are a couple of different levels here so shakespeare and company as a company is not neutral on this subject um there has been a concerted effort on the part before i even before I even joined the company in my current position, concerted effort to do better, to really take a look at the Black Lives Matters movement, the Me Too movement, and to ask some serious questions. The whole theater industry is asking these questions right now. How do we not go back to the way things were pre-pandemic, but how do we actually take the lessons of that time and make some change? It's hard. It's uncomfortable, but how are we going to do it? And Shakespeare and Company, as a company, is deeply engaged in that question, and it's one of the reasons that I'm here. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Um, the The performance, the the show itself, Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, is directed by our artistic director Alan Burroughs. and he said to us many times, and I, I really appreciate this statement, that Mids a Midsummer Night's Dream is like a ritual. It's it's so tried and true. Everyone, okay, I don't want to say that. Many, many people <laughs> know this play, right? Not everyone, certainly, but many, many people know this play or they've heard of aspects of it. And so doing it is like reincarnating it. 
but reincarnating it for now. So one piece of the, the cake here is that our particular production is set loosely in the 1970s, <laughs> which gives us immediate access <laughs> to some of the more gender bendy qualities of it. This particular show, um, though the four lovers, the, the, the two sort of pairs are traditionally cast as female bodied, male bodied actors, many of the other roles are are changed. The mechanicals who are the five people who create all of the um, the hijinks is all different. As Puck, I am, I believe, the very first female actor to play Puck at Shakespeare and Company in the history of the company. And it's been done a number of times. Mm -hmm. So that's <laughs> a very, very cool thing <laughs> to be able to say. Um, and then in terms of the world of the play, we're drawing a lot on 1970s rock music, which if you're a fan of that genre, and I know someone on here is, as well as myself. Both of us. <laughs> two, oh, both of you. Okay, great. So we're all fans of that genre. Um, one of the one of the inspirational characters is David Bowie, and who's more gender bendy than David Bowie? But really, what we're doing. And when we say gender bendy, it's really about just embracing the whole spectrum of who we are as human beings and not categorizing ourselves simply by female, male, and the kinds of roles that society puts us in based on what the body that we were born into. Um, so as Puck, one of the things that I'm playing with quite a lot is living out this sort of dream I have. I, I, I'm a very girly girl in a lot of ways, and I always have been. And so, and I, and I'm, I'm fine with that. That's like kind of part of my personality. But as Puck, wearing glitter boots and glitter eye makeup and a glitter um, kind of doublet kind of thing, <laughs> I feel like a 1970s rock star, and it gives me a lot of permission. It gives me a lot of permission to connect with the darker, more mischievous parts of myself, the parts of myself that maybe traditionally women are asked not to share or to show. Um, and and that's true across the board, I think, in this particular production. You're not going to find that the characters are old and stodgy. I mean, we're, we're in like wide-legged pants and <laughs> crop tops. It's, it, it, it feels very, very of the now and that's just the one one layer of it but I'll, I'll leave it at that but what a layer a david bowie layer is like an onion layer in and of itself i know like yeah. who and doesn't a delicious want to, one exactly. exactly who doesn't want to have a david bowie layer right. why well no i feel like you've already answered the question why bowie i just want to ask it because i like david bowie and i want more people to talk about i've it. literally dressed up as david bowie probably no fewer than 10 times in my life <laughs> You have a whole book. I have a whole book of the yeah yeah yeah. I have, yeah. A, I have a lot of Bowie in my life. There, it's he's he's my fairy godmother, so I know what you mean. Me too. <laughs> so what what updates? Hmm, let's see if I can yeah. get this question out properly. I want to ask you about yeah. movement in this play yeah. because sure. the way that people move, especially, ends up being important not just for conveying emotion and conveying things, but like if you're setting it in the 70s, there's going to be a certain way that people slink about stage and convey themselves. Mm -hmm. So what's the importance of, of the shift in movement depending on 
on mm. setting? Or how do yeah. you shift movement depending on setting? Well, I think the most visible kind of aspect of this is that these, the characters, our Midsummer, are people that you would see on the street. They're, you know, they're not buttoned up in corsets and, you know, of another time. The women aren't holding themselves with their backs ramrod straight. The men aren't bowing. This is a casual contemporary world um, where there is a sense of play in the physicality. It's extremely playful. The lovers, the two sets of lovers, they fight full bodied. <laughs> I mean, there are football moves in there. The women, the two, the two female lead women who are, they are physical. I mean, they get in there. There are slaps. There are kicks down. The, the, the guys are on the ground. Shakespeare and Company does have a fight choreographer, which I was like, I, that's like my dream job. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's all completely and utterly safe. But this is what I mean. It's, it's visceral. Mm. And I think in terms of what... If, there's some stuff within the play you're not going to get away from. If you tell the story the way it's told, there are gender differentiations. But physically, what you're going to see is you're going to see a group of people, 12 actors of all different backgrounds who are strong, who are having a great time and who are playing together for the enjoyment of the audience. And I think that power and that kind of feeling of like, hey, all of none of these women None of the women up there are shrinking violets. There, there is a very diverse multicultural group of people on stage as well. We have re, um, I guess, I guess retold some of the the languages Spanish now. So there's like we have we have a number of Spanish speaking actors. Uh, for some of them, it's their first language, and so that's actually part of the dynamic. Is sometimes they flip into speaking Spanish, and audiences. It's so great when they suddenly recognize because we can hear people who speak Spanish. They start laughing right away. They're like, oh, and it and it elevates, and. I find it to be very exciting because it's speaking to what I think is the U.S. today, where we we can embrace all people and the fact that there are people in the audience who immediately go, "Oh, that's my that's my language." I think is really exciting to do that with Shakespeare. Um, it's just something that is a little bit more unexpected, right? Because it's it's a translation. I don't understand everything because I unfortunately don't speak Spanish, but the people. <laughs> But but people do, and it's so great to embrace them that way. If you are not well-versed in Shakespeare, it doesn't okay. get much more fun than watching A Midsummer Night's Dream. There's a donkey. There's I mean, a guy who turns into a donkey. a donkey. There's fairies. There's uh, some drug use, I guess you could call it, if you're probably setting it in a 70s perspective. There's And with Shakespeare and Company's uh, production right now, there is David Bowie. And there is... <laughs> Sheila Bandupadai as Puck, the first female <laughs> Puck at Shakespeare and Company. It sounds like an incredible performance, and it goes through September 10th at Shakespeare and Company in Lenox. Sheila, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. It was so fun to talk with you both. Yay! Really appreciate the time. Oh, no problem.
problem. We got more theater coming up later in the show. We'll explore the history of Northampton through Bardically, I guess, as historic <laughs> Northampton prepares to present Pulling at the Roots on its own grounds. But next, we'll rue the Latin origins of some hard-to-pronounce science with resident Wordster senior editor Emily Brewster. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster. Some people say Merriam-Webster like a person's name, but it's not technically how you say the name of your dictionary. But interesting ways to pronounce things is our topic for your Word Nerd segment today. Yes, especially a set of words that can be particularly tricky. So in English, you know, we've got we've got this long, complicated history, and a lot of it, a good chunk of our vocabulary has Latin somewhere in it. And we have, uh, we really have this small set of words that are complicated. We all know what to do with O-A in boat and coach, right? The O, the O says its name, as I used to tell my students back in the day when I was a reading teacher. <laughs> I um, love that. We know what to do with A-I, like the A says Yeah, we need name. to regulate it now before it takes over. I mean, <laughs> look, we've been given yes. many warnings from many sci-fi authors oh. and directors over the years. Oh, no, not that AI. You mean the way to pronounce AI together? Like yes, the way to pronounce AI, like in the word rain. rain. Or, you know, sometimes we, we we soften it a bit, like in the word again, mm-hmm. unless you're British, then you say again, or if you're singing in a musical, you have to say again. Right, because that's where the rain in, in Spain is. Mainly. Yes, but what do you Emily do Brewster, I thought with you didn't the like word musicals? Monty, maybe someday we'll have a long, developed conversation about musicals because my my feelings about them are actually a little complicated. Okay, understandable. The word antenna, and specifically not not the TV antenna, not that anybody has those anymore. But let's think about an um, an insects when when they've got two, which they typically do. Right. We right. spell the word a n t e n n a e. On your TV, you get antennas. That is very well established that in those technological contexts, it is the plural of antenna is antennas. But in the natural world and in the natural sciences, it's this other thing with this A-E on the end. How do each of you say it? The plural of antenna? I say mm-hmm. antenna. Like, I lean towards the Latin because there's just, especially with, when we're talking science, there's so much Latin there to begin with. So I would assume that the Latin pronunciation is the way that you want to go, but that's my brain. Well, and which Latin one? I mean, this right. is this is the confusing thing, right? Like, what about in A-L-G-A-E? I say algae. You say algae. If it's plural, though, you mean? But isn't it algae? Well, I thought algae was alga. already. It's alga it's and actually, algae. Yeah. Algae. And I think I say, I think I do say antennae. You say antennae. I don't know if I should. Well, it, technically, most scientists are, are more likely to say antennae. Antennae. Uh-huh. With the A-E saying E the way that it does in algae, the way that it does in Caesar, like in Caesar salad. Caesar. Is a salad dressing dude. And right. also that guy. Um, also in Aquavite, Aquavite, and uh, Arborvite, which is a, a handy shrub. But that A-E sound, Khalees, you are right. <laughs> Linguists believe that it was pronounced as a long I, like in like the vowel sound of the word my. So why do we say, or why do why do biologists and entomologists say antennae? Well, Latin was spoken for so stinking long that its pronunciations changed over time. And so what we believe happened is that Latin, you know, which is now a 
a completely dead language, right? Like nobody grows up speaking Latin unless there's part of some kind of a strange experiment or something. <laughs> My great aunt had a poem. Latin is a dead language, as dead as it can be. It killed all the Romans and now it's killing me. <laughs> <laughs> that I sound for the letters A-E didn't really stick around. It's thought that the sound eventually merged with the long E sound like in me. So this is why we now have entomologists in English saying antennae, but why it also makes sense to someone who is not an entomologist to go with a pronunciation like antennae. It's the etymology of entomology. <laughs> How do you say say antennas? Yeah. In that case, like, so when you say curriculum vitae as opposed to vitae, which is what I have been saying, like for CVs, curriculum vitae. Yeah. Curriculum maitae. Like arborvitae, right, which is what we already talked about, yeah. Because we are a descriptive dictionary and Mm -hmm. because there's so many English speakers and the word, our words just have to do this job of communicating for us. Multiple pronunciations are perfectly acceptable. So curriculum Vitae is the first pronunciation that we give in our dictionary, but we also give curriculum vitae. The and mighty we curriculum vitae. vitae. We give several others also. I love it. Everyone's a winner, baby. That's the truth. And that's really what the dictionary in Springfield, Merriam-Webster, the Dictionary of Note in the United States of America and Emily Brewster from Greenfield are often telling us that there is very few times where there is one right way. So be careful about how judgmental you're going to be when somebody says something maybe slightly different, especially because how many people use curriculum vitae? I mean, it's just me. Yeah, on, on a daily basis. The, on this side of the pond. And you might read it somewhere. And that's not an easy word to understand how to pronounce if you've only seen it written. That's another big important thing too, right? Like a lot of times people mispronounce things, but it's because they read a lot. Lot and they don't necessarily hear those words a lot. Right. And everybody just says CV. Mm-hmm. Now, right. the other thing, the other interesting thing about this is that the sound I is technically called a diphthong. That's D-I-P-H-T-H-O-N-G. Often mispronounced Dip- as diphthong, which just sounds right. much cooler. It sounds like a, <laughs> some sort of a hip hop artist. <laughs> sounds like terrible underwear. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, A diphthong is a vowel sound that is pronounced with the mouth in more than one articulatory position. So the articulatory positions of your mouth, it's the positions of the various elements of your mouth have to be in to produce a sound, right? So when we say like the sound that the letter P makes, that is a, uh, a bilabial plosive, it means that both lips are kind of exploding open. A diphthong goes from one vowel sound to another vowel sound and the mouth actually changes the tongue changes its position the shape of the of the lips the jaw like all those things shift in the making of this sound so you can compare it to a sound well the vowel sound in the word cat we say ah right your mouth can be frozen doesn't matter when you take a picture of someone saying the ah sound because their mouth is going to be exactly the same until they get to the t but if you have a word like kite they, you will watch as, as you see somebody say a word like kite. The mouth opens first, like it does for that ah sound, kai, and then it goes to this um, much tighter sound with the jaw closed up and the teeth closed together. 
and the mouth is no longer open like an O, it's kind of like squeezed together like E, like a like a smile. That is technically what a diphthong is. And the AE sound or the sound that the letters AE made in Latin went from being this I, I sound. To then eventually being this E sound. We're all just victims of Latin in so many ways, is what it really comes down to. And now it's killing me. The, the funny thing about this is that, like, there is a similar shift in Korean because it's got vowel structure that is similar to this, where you have like AE or OA, and you used to pronounce. Often, I can't hear it very often, but people tell me that you can hear it when people from the country are speaking because they'll still pronounce both vowels. But if you're in a city like Busan or like Seoul, it's now the second vowel that you'll hear and not the first one. It stays there for the written element, but it's not said anymore. Well, very interesting. Even, yeah, so in, even in English, I love to demonstrate this because in the Northeast, we're very good at this. But in other parts of the country, they're not, where you can say Mary, who is a person's name, feels Mary because she's overjoyed because she's about to marry the person of her dreams. And similarly, like one of my best friends growing up is Aaron, and I have a cousin named Aaron. Yeah, there's Aaron and there's Aaron and there's Mary and Mary and Mary, yeah. not Mary and Mary and Mary <laughs> and Aaron and Aaron. <laughs> that doesn't happen everywhere else. The, the dictionary yeah. may uh, call balls and strikes, but I'm going to say this is the <laughs> right way to do it. I don't know what you're talking about. Is Mary going to marry Mary? Mary? I don't know. I don't know. I grew up with no distinction between the Mary, Mary, Mary. And then I married someone. I married. I didn't know I was uh, getting married uh. at the point, but I, I was actually getting married <laughs> to someone who had a great distinction. This, And now we talk about it every Christmas morning. It's like a big topic of conversation. When, at what point in the morning does that trio of words come up? Right. You know? After Mary <laughs> has the baby, it's a Merry Christmas. Yeah. And I've, I've kind of adopted, I've tried to adopt you know, this, this distinction because it makes sense to me intuitively, but it doesn't come naturally to me. And what I end up saying is that I'm going to get like a, you know, a you ride a ferry boat, right? It's ferry, not fairy. Yeah, I'd yeah. love the to ride a ferry boat the, if that was available. I was about to make a terrible Fire Island joke. It's all a mess, though. Go into it with an open mind. If somebody pronounces something slightly differently than you do, don't judge them. Is this similar to the the way that we get weird and neighbor and the ongoing EI situation? EI, EI, go! where it's just confusing all the time and you just kind of have to know which one is pronounced like what? It's sort of like that, but we can't blame Latin at all. Those Fair are enough. old English. Somebody else's fault. You know, more <laughs> other, others of our dead relatives, I guess. <laughs> our dead linguistic relatives, our relations. But yeah. we can blame Latin for A-E. Yes, we can blame Latin for A-E. Although, here's one. The word M-A-E-S-T-R-O. Maestro. Maestro. Yes, Maestro, it's the only common English A-E word that only ever gets pronounced with that long I sound, that diphthong. For now. And we, that, yeah. <laughs> what, for now. For now, exactly. And it, that's because we got it from Italian specifically. And so it just has that one pronunciation. I think truthfully what's happening is that that word has a much narrower application. And so people learn the word as, as a more finite term than a term that gets applied in lots of different contexts. Right? I also like, how often like... do you see a maestro? Well, I, we've talked to one three times this year. Yeah, we went and hung out in his dressing room, Keith Lockhart from the Boston Pops. Yep. We tried to get John Williams, so that would have been two. 
Yep. We talked yeah. to a young maestro who we was did. yeah. So he was super nervous. But you were never you were never you were never tempted to call them a, a maestro. No. No. Or a maestro, no. which I feel is the other way to go with this and implies something entirely different. <laughs> or a maestro, which maestro. is maybe where we combined it from the Italian with the long i sound there, maestro. Or you know the other yeah. way around since Italian comes out of the Latin and the Roman. Yeah. Yeah, Latin didn't kill all of the Romans. <laughs> yeah, some of it was Gauls. The Gaul. <laughs> well, Emily Brewster, you are our, our maestro of uh, navigating these difficult things in the English language and always guiding us in a way that trips the antennae of so many of our listeners. And I do want to give a shout out to one of them who uh, sent us an email last week, Ed Nagawam, who says, love your show. My friends and I have been using Fox as a verb for quite a while now. It's a way to describe friends or family who drank the Fox News Kool-Aid hook, line, and sinker. Oh my God, Suzette got foxed so badly. Nobody even calls her anymore. They foxed the country so bad. People are ready to start another civil war. These are not necessarily the views espoused by New England Public Media. Uh, Those are the views of Ed and Agawam, who's turning words like Fox into verbs. And that's just the way the English language evolves. So maybe we'll come up with a, if you have a topic for the word nerd that piques your interest, like Ed and Agawam, I have a question for the word nerd or suggestions for words to get in the dictionary, which is not how they're going to ultimately end up getting in there. We still want to hear about it. <laughs> but maybe you're like right on track and they're already looking at it. So who knows? Yeah. Might as well ask. Send us an email at thefab413 at nepm.org and do include the definite article there. It is part of the whole email address, thefab413 at nepm.org. Thank you, Emily Brewster. And thank you, Monty and Felice. Apropos of the fact that we just talked about the AE ending, we did the Gone But Forgotten asks. Not forgotten. Gone But Not Forgotten asks of last week. <laughs> they were forgotten. They wouldn't send us emails. Right. We got an email <laughs> that said, am I the only one who misses Aqua Vitae? V-I-T-A-E. It's now the site of a ginormous gas station as you drive east on Route 9 in Hadley after crossing the river. Aqua Vitae was a fairly run-of-the-mill Italian restaurant, but the murals inside with scenes of Italy were very special, either pop art or high kitsch. But I love that place and would have tried to save the murals if it had not been torn down before that was possible. A major loss to the local art scene, he says. Cheers, writes Tom Freudenheim in response to our gone but not forgotten question about places in the 413 that have left an indelible mark. I have to say, I, like many of my friends' bands, played at Aqua ah, Nice. Tom Freudenheim, I believe, is an art historian and the former head of the Worcester Art Museum. In addition to having a series of very interesting mailing addresses that he put in the postscript of his email, and also appears to write for a blog called Old Fart Thoughts on Museum. I mean, so that's kind of amazing, right? That there. is pretty. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like your dream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More of your responses to Gone But Not Forgotten all this week. Up next, a triple dose of history hits us through three plays being presented at Historic Northampton. We'll talk to Patrick Gabridge and Betty Sharp about the series of pieces that make up Pulling at the Roots. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. So 
<laughs> Welcome back to the fabulous 413. Pulling at the Roots is a series of three site-specific plays staged in an old barn on the grounds of historic Northampton that moved the audience through three centuries of Northampton history. The plays are running now through September 3rd, but I think all the shows have sold out. So this might be as close to uh, getting to get a glimpse into these shows, for now at least, as and, you can get. And maybe you'll know next time to look on the site get and be t- prepared to buy tickets early. And fast. We welcome Betty Sharp, one of the co-directors of Historic Northampton, and playwright Patrick Gaybridge from the company Plays in Place, who wrote one of the three plays. Welcome, Betty and Patrick. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Now, Great uh, to be here. Betty, we'll start with you. I think it may be fairly self-explanatory what Historic Northampton is right there <laughs> on, on Bridge Street in Northampton. What is the overarching mission of Historic Northampton? Historic Northampton is a museum and a public space uh, right on Bridge Street in Northampton. We have um, exhibits, we have collections of about 40,000 objects and an extensive archives of Northampton history. And we preserve Northampton history and we um, do education programs to explain and interpret that to people both on our site and around town. We see the whole town as really historic Northampton. We do a lot of walking tours. Too. And it seems to me that over the last few years has been a renewed interest and renewed investment, both financially and in the community, in what North, historic Northampton has to offer, which I think is great. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful to go check it out whenever you get a chance. And these three plays were commissioned by historic Northampton. Talk about how the commissioning of these plays fits into that overall mission. Oh, absolutely. We, we're trying to put the humanity back in history and to make historic Northampton and history as alive as we possibly can. And so we restored a barn, which is on our property. It's a smallish carriage barn. And we knew that inside of it, we wanted some exciting things to happen and some new ways to teach history. And so uh, the first thing we did was get in touch with Patrick Gabridge and Plays in Place. And he thought with us about how to create plays on our property, write about our our place in Northampton and bring those to the public in our barn and on our grounds. And Patrick Gabridge joins us in the studio and plays in place. I, last week when we were on vacation, was in Salem, Massachusetts, where there is on the streets of Salem, I believe still, a play that's been running for 20 years called Cry Innocent, where you go to this play and have to decide whether one of these women who's been accused of witchcraft is uh, should it's like a grand jury? Should she be brought to trial with the evidence before you? An interactive, immersive play on the streets is that sort of the theme of what goes on with plays in place? Is this an, an immersive experience? It's not exactly that kind of thing. In that we're very much a, a text-based theater company, so we're actually writing plays that you're going to go see. I'm a playwright. The other playwrights are are. are that we work with are all writers. So the it's immersive in the sense that you're in the space where this is happening and the plays that we create are very tightly linked to space, to mm-hmm. the places where we're at. And we always partner with an historic site or a museum or other cultural institution um, that has a relationship to space. So it it's immersive in that way, but it's also it's a it's a play that's evolving while you're watching it. 
you brought a book um, of other plays you've written from Mount Auburn Cemetery. Tell us a little bit about what that kind of uh, what that was meant for that community. So for that project, I was an artist in residence at Mount Auburn for a couple of years. And so we did two series of five plays each. And we moved the audience from place to place to place around the cemetery. One set was around nature and the natural world. One was around history through the lens of Mount Auburn. And we also did a play designed to be done under the full moon, Moonlight Abolitionists. So it's a play that can only be done under the full moon. It's around six abolitionists who are buried there. It's a concert reading. So every time we're trying to understand what this space dictates in terms of how we're going to tell this story, and that applies to the historic Northampton plays too. So not just place, but time sometimes plays a factor as to how and um, if these plays can happen. Sometimes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And like in this one, um, (laughs) the new Shepherd Barn is... uh, not a heated space, so we oh. couldn't do this in the wintertime, um, but it's a great spring, summer, or fall set of plays. And and the plays that are being done there, so one of them, the first one, is about Mary Bliss Parsons, who was an early resident in the 1600s, um, one of the first um, European residents of Northampton. And so it's about accusations of witchcraft leveled against her, the haunting that kind of exists in her mind from her neighbors accusing her of these things. And they owned this property that we were on. So, I mean, it is really tied to that. The, the second play is about Jonathan Edwards and a woman who's uh, reverend who's quite famous in Northampton. The fire and brimstone Jonathan Edwards. Exactly. <laughs> well, he also <laughs> enslaved people. And yeah. so it's about an interaction between him and a woman that he had enslaved. And it is right on the path that he would have taken to visit his daughter's grave. Um, so we're really making use of it. And, and my play, the third play, is about um, Lydia, Maria, Lydia Mariah Childs and David Lee Childs and about the, the breach that's happening in their relationship over sugar beet farming and a barn seems like a really good place to have uh, <laughs> arguments about farming. Yeah, that was a little bit more than they could chew. It was yeah. a lot. It was a good effort, though. It, it, was. Is. it was. It was. <laughs> we draw your attention to the first week of shows of the fabulous 413, <laughs> where we talked with author Lydia Moland about her great book about Lydia Mariah Childs. Well, uh, we're going to take a quick break right here, and we're going to come back and talk more with Betty Sharp, one of the co-directors of Historic Northampton. I want to dig a little bit deeper into the real histories of some of these folks that we've mentioned, as well as playwright Patrick Gaybridge from the company Plays in Place. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. (laughs) And I'm Khalees Smith. Pulling at the Roots, a series of three site-specific plays staged in an old barn on the grounds of historic Northampton. Uh, sold out, but running now through September 3rd and joining us is one of the playwrights, Patrick Gaybridge, as well as one of the co-directors of Historic Northampton, Betty Sharp. This old barn that we keep talking about um, made news in and of itself in its restoration process. Do you want to talk about what Historic Northampton has done to bring this old barn back to life? Manually. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. Um, (laughs) Yes. So the barn itself, the structure, was probably built in about 1805, so it's quite old and it's been on our property for almost a couple hundred years. So when we restored it, we knew we wanted to have the center of it be as empty as possible so that we could do performances of all types. So we added an an addition to to the back end of it. And then we also added an addition that has bathrooms on the front. But what we knew we had to do was to put on a new, put under it a new foundation. So the best way to do that was to slide the old barn off the old foundation 
put in a new one and then slide the barn back. <laughs> easy. Well, the, the timber frame <laughs> had, yeah, easy. The timber framer said, well, I could do that with a bulldozer, but why why bother when I could get 300 people on ropes to come by historic <laughs> Northampton and pull it off? Was that the actual proposal? Like, I could bring in 300 people and we'll just do this. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, well, actually, the first the when we pulled it off on a on a cold on a November day, two hundred people showed up to pull it off. It didn't take very long, and then on a January day, three hundred showed up to pull it back on the on the new foundation. So now it rests on its new foundation. Were either you, uh, Betty, or, or you, Patrick, one of the pullers? Sadly, no, I was busy. Cool. But oh, go ahead, Betty. I was pulling. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the coolest thing: How did they set the foundation back? They had to put the barn back down on the foundation, but gently, without oh, it getting right. caught up on the jacks. Yeah. How did that? How happen? did that happen? Yeah. Well, so it was winter, and how did that happen? You didn't want it to drop, you know. Right. So that uh, someone had the brilliant idea of putting block, small blocks of ice where the jack was, wow. and letting so the smart. ice melt. <laughs> And then it slowly went down onto the foundation. It sat down gently. I have to tell you that in one of the corners, the northeast corner, was a little cold and it wasn't melting as fast. So as don't go other. in the house then because everything rolls down to the southwest corner. So a little spray of alcohol helped that one. I've been there. (laughs) We're speaking with Betty Sharp, one of the co-directors of Historic Northampton, where three plays that will explore the roots, actual historical roots of uh, Northampton will take place. And we mentioned I didn't know that Northampton had a person who lived there that was accused of witchcraft. This Mary Bliss Parsons that's in the first place circling suspicion and is the person who owned the land that Historic Northampton is on. Tell us a little bit more about her, Betty. Yeah, uh, so the the original owners of that particular piece of property it was the um, Parsons family, Joseph Parsons family, and she was the wife of Joseph Parsons, who was about the wealthiest guy in town, and he was fur trading with the native people and um, making money uh, quite a number of ways, tra- other other kinds of trade too down in Springfield. They moved up from Springfield, so they were already already a kind of a cut above everybody else. And um, his wife, Mary, was uh, accused of witchcraft t- at least twice and uh, tried twice in spring in um, first in Springfield and then in, in Boston. Um, and even though she was acquitted, it sort of didn't matter. The rumors never stopped. It's sort of like bullying. You know, it just it never stops in a small community. And this pestered her for the rest of her life. And in fact, the play is about whether to move back to Springfield, which has grown a little larger and might be a better environment for them. They ultimately do move back to Springfield. How did you choose the subject matter for these three plays? Was it presented to you? Like, were these figures from Northampton's past that jumped out at you as playwright? Or how did that come about? So I met with the folks at Historic Northampton and and said, you know, give me a list of, you know, your top 20 stories that you think are associated with the town. But I, but again, I'm interested in like when we're doing them at the space, like what's related to here. So it's, again, it's picking out to pieces to find the stories that I can really tie to this place. Um, and so the Parsons project was obvious. Um, but the literally other ones, that very, very place. It's mm-hmm. literally yeah. right there. And that <laughs> is really what we try to do. And, and the kind of way we stage things typically is too, is that we are not 
adding a lot of extraneous stuff. So we're not bringing in a set. We're not bringing in big banks of lights, typically not a lot of speakers. You might do a little sound design, but costume design, the acting, and the script are doing all the work for us. And the site. The site is often the extra character in, in these plays that we do. And my dear friend Linda Tardif, who's in that play, will be mad if I don't mention that Linda Tardif is in Circling Suspicion, <laughs> along with Bill Stewart and Christine Stevens. The second play, Rose, uh, by Jasmine Rochelle Goodspeed, uh, Jonathan Edwards, a very famous name, one of the most famous names in American yeah, wrote the Christianity. Song Sunshine, right? Oh, that's a different Jonathan Edwards. I like that one. There's the fun- <laughs> There's a fun- <laughs> Hellfire and Brimstone Jonathan Edwards is what he's most famous for. Um, but his slavery um, and being a slaver is not something that I was overly familiar with with him. I know that he's Aaron Burr's. Uh, I believe, father-in-law as well. Um, But tell us a little bit about the slave history of Jonathan Edwards, Betty Sharp from Historic Northampton. Yeah, um, we know that he enslaved several people over his lifetime, probably four or five. It's it's not completely clear. We have evidence, well, we have a a bill of sale. He went to uh, Newport, uh, no, I think it was Bristol, Rhode Island, in in 1731 to to purchase a young woman that he called Venus. And she lived in his household for a while, and this Rose um, lived in his household. Um, she was probably uh, uh, late teens, maybe early twenties, in about 1750. And the crux of the story is really an interesting one. So he's about to be dismissed as the minister in in Northampton, everyone is really tired of him and his fire and brimstone mm. and uh, and his very strict ways. And so Rose confronts him, or at least in this play, she confronts him. I don't know whether she would have been able to do that in real life to say, if you have to leave here, what about me? I have made I'm slave to you, but I have made a relationship with another man here and I want to stay or I want him to come with us. So the discussion is over that and also about his ideas of Edwards, challenging Edwards' ideas about love and freedom and that sort of thing. It's fascinating. And we do know that um, she she and this other man, Joe Ab, are married uh, a year or so later and they we know that she leaves with Edwards when he goes to Stockbridge, Massachusetts. We believe Joe had followed. They were married. They made a home there. We believe she was freed soon after that because by by a few years later, she's not listed when he dies. So they make a home together. They have six daughters, four die in infancy, unfortunately, and they carry on in Stockbridge. The final of the three plays of Pulling at the Roots was written by you, Patrick Gabridge, the Optimist Razor, and talks about a couple people that we've talked about on the show several times, David and uh, Lydia Mariah Child, and their struggle with growing sugar beets to try to compete with sugar cane and the uh, the slavery-based industries of that time. Why was this a character that spoke to you to want to write a play about? I'd actually already been writing about her for another play oh. that we're doing set that it will be, take place all goes well. We'll stage this in the Senate chamber of the Massachusetts State House wow. around the 1838 speech by Angelina Grimke to the legislature. But Lydia Mariah Child was there, was a friend of hers. So I knew a lot about her. So it was kind of like, oh, this is great. I get to spend more time with her. She's a fascinating person who sacrificed a lot for the abolitionist cause um, and was really a groundbreaking woman in terms of, you've talked to Lydia Mullen. So, she, you know, she was 
publishing this magazine for children. She was writing books. She was breaking ground in terms of her abolition work and sacrificing a lot. I mean, she essentially was canceled when she spoke out against slavery. Her yeah, books it'd be were like pulled if Martha Stewart went yep. full on Black Lives Matter. Yep. Yeah, you know, people just take her stuff out and burn it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So that was good. And I think the this moment, though, where she has this offer to publish, uh, to be editor of the National Anti-Slavery Standard, a weekly newspaper um, in New York, and David is here trying to make sugar beets go. And it feels like an intense rupture point for any marriage where, you know, the two, uh, that feels very modern, too, in mm-hmm. its way of like, somebody's got a career option here in the West Coast, here's on the East Coast, you know. Back then, Northampton and New York City were pretty far apart. There wasn't an easy way to get back and forth. And so, and there was a lot more restrictions on women back then, too, in terms of being independent, managing finances. So it felt like, what do we do? Like, do we go or do we stay? And, and, and that was a great crux for a play. Is this a series that's going to be continued or or is this like the is is this a project that is is reached its completion and it is its own thing or are there going to be more another series of these that are directly connected to historic Northampton that you're looking to commission later on? We definitely would like to. I mean that's what we hope to have in the barn and um, we're so thrilled to start with this. We hope this all these three plays will come back again next uh, next summer. But we hope to do more creative things and we invite all kinds of creative people in our listening area to think about how they might interpret local history or be inspired by local history to to create some some drama in there. I think it's amazing. You're working with a fantastic group of uh, local actors as well. And uh, as we mentioned, Pulling at the Roots is currently sold out. But you have now heard from Betty that it might come back again next year. So if any of these stories, oh, now it's confirmed. If any you of heard the, it here. <laughs> so sign up for the mailing news. list. Right, exactly. Yes. And you might find out about new and entirely new and interesting figures from Northampton's history as well as the ones that are in these three plays. Yeah, excellent. And then what about regular hours at Historic Northampton, Betty? When are you generally open if you just want to go tour what you, the catalog and the, the history of the museum has got to offer right now? Uh, we're open Wednesday through Sunday from 12 to 5. That is one of the co-directors of Historic Northampton, Betty Sharp, as well as playwright Patrick Gaybridge from the company Plays in Place, who have the sold-out production at Historic Northampton <laughs> on Bridge Street right now. It's so nice to say. It it's is so nice. sad for us. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm lucky for us and our listeners that we at least get to hear about these, and it right. will uh, tempt us for the next time they, they make another round. Thank you both so much. Thank you for having us. Of course. Thank you. Thursday on the Fabulous 413, we're getting fit. We'll speak with Dallas Dukar of Trans Health about National Pony Sweat. We'll be leading a free and fiercely non-competitive dance aerobic class for Trans Health to raise awareness and funds to expand access to gender-affirming care and impact policies that protect the rights of trans and gender-diverse people. And we'll make a visit to, visit to Restless Books in Amherst to discover how its new brick-and-mortar location is helping folks discover literary voices from all over the globe with its founder, Amherst College's Ilan Stavans. Plus our weekly chat with Representative Jim McGovern. Got a question for the congressman? Email us, the fab, the fab 413 at nepm.org. <laughs> Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, David Bowie, The Beatles, Hot Chocolate, Cisco, Ozzy Osbourne, Sesame Street, NRBQ, The Beastie, Boys, The Roots, and Alice Merton. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Kalee Smith. Thanks to the tireless Fab 413 tech team. We'll see you tomorrow.